Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks. Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick. Welcome to February 2021. I love saying 2021, by the way. Um, Welcome to episode 26 of The Leadership Window. I am Patrick Jinks, certified leadership and strategy coach and president of the Jinx Perspective. And got on a friend, a colleague, a really massive uh, asset to the sector I work in and a lot of you as listeners work in, Charles Weathers. Many of you already know who Charles is, particularly those of you that are in the South Carolina footprint, although Charles is all over the country. He is a nationally recognized consultant and professional speaker, and he's known for helping leaders in not just the nonprofit sector, but the government sector and private sectors. And here's what he does. He helps people facilitate courageous, connected conversations and strengthen organizational performance. So we are going to talk, uh, we're going to pick his brain a little bit about those courageous conversations and connected conversations. He's the founder of the Weathers Group, and uh, he has logged more than 15,000 hours over the last 18 years of facilitation and guiding these conversations and coaching and strategic planning. Uh, Over 1,100 organizations internationally that he has served. He has uh, been around. He's a veteran of the United States Air Force. He's a certified mediator. He's got a bunch of other certifications and things that I don't want to take the whole episode on, but check him out at weathersgroup.com. We'll have the link on the podcast page. But Charles, um, what I would say about Charles is that uh, when I came to South Carolina 2014, beginning of 2015, Uh, The first name I heard and continued to hear was Charles Weathers um, because I came here as a part of the United Way Network before I launched my own coaching business. And pretty much in the sector, Charles Weathers uh, was and is the go-to. He is the real deal. He's just so versatile in how many different things he can help nonprofits with because it focuses back on the conversations. But I'm going to let him say more about that. Charles, man, I've been really excited about this. You, um, you set the bar for all of us. I think in this state, we, we know we talk a lot about the richness of the profession of consulting and coaching in South Carolina. And you're, you're, you're one of the pillars of that. In my view, you really are. I, the one, I want to say one more thing, because when I talk about, uh, Charles, um, one of the things I always say is the first conference workshop I went to after I came here to South Carolina, I think it was, I think it was a regional United way conference mm-hmm. and you were, uh, you were speaking on governance. You did, a, it was a breakout, it was a workshop. Mm-hmm. And I walked out going, that's how you do governance. And that's how you make governance, not only like rich in content, but fun and engaging. And I walked out going, okay, that's, uh, and so I've uh, referred a lot of people uh, to you. I don't know how many of them actually come to you, but when it comes to governance, I'm, I, you're kind of the guy. And I know there's other things too, but 
Uh, I'm going to shut up now and just say welcome to the studio as well. And welcome to the show. Thanks, man, for carving out time for this. Wow, Patrick, thank you so much. I am humbled by that introduction. And I am sitting here saying, who is he talking about? Yeah, but, right, <laughs> right, right. Thank you so much, my friend. It is good to be here with you. And so congratulatory towards your success and what you're doing and the impact you're having in South Carolina and across the country. It's an honor to call you a colleague. Man, the same goes, the same goes. And you are someone who, one of the things that you've said in a, in a group of, of us consultants who share this space, you are the one who I think said the loudest and the most profoundly, there is room for all of us because mm -hmm. there are lots of needs and there are lots of organizations and we have, each of us have a unique set of skills and, and values and approaches that we take. It's not a one size fits all. And boy, if, if you weren't right, in fact, I, we, we even got to work with a couple of our other colleagues, mm -hmm. uh, over the spring when that pandemic started, we wrote some blogs together and did some mm -hmm. videos together. So I just, it, the honor's mine, the honor's mine for sure. Thank you, my friend. Isn't it interesting? We as consultants need to practice what we preach, right? We we teach nonprofits to know this how to collaborate, form yeah. partnerships and alliances. Yeah. We need to do the same thing, and we are. And we are. We absolutely are. And and I think in every conversation we've had, uh, you and I, and and with others that many of our listeners would know as well, that always comes up. What can we work on together? Mm -hmm. You know, so I, th I think we're, we're talking about that a lot and we've practiced it where we can. And uh, I think it's really cool. Uh, for those that don't know you, catch us up. How did you, what's the Weathers Group? How did you, 18 years, 1,100 organizations, mm. 15,000 hours of facilitation. How'd this thing get started? And just tell us a little bit about the journey to this point. Well, you know, it is an interesting journey, a fascinating journey. The short story is I lost my job. And I was working. That's a common story. <laughs> I lost my job. But let me, <laughs> let me go before that for a second. The uniqueness of my perspective and experience is this. I've worked in the nonprofit sector, the government sector, and the private sector. Mm -hmm. Worked in all three. Uh, when I first got out of high school, I joined the military. Nine years in the Air Force, as you mentioned. And when I got out of the Air Force, I went to corporate America. I was a sales and marketing manager for a national water treatment company. And so I had leadership development skills from military. I had sales and marketing and relationship development skills from mm. working in the private sector. Then I went to the nonprofit sector. I was a fundraiser, development director, and marketing director for a nonprofit here in Columbia. Mm. And here's something that happened. As a development director for this particular nonprofit, my job was funded from a grant through a state agency. Of course, the state agency was working with this nonprofit and wanted to, to increase their capacity. We've heard that word, right? Mm -hmm. I come on board as a development director. We start raising money, so much money that the state agency says to the nonprofit, we're going to cut the grant funding for that position because you're now raising money. The board of this particular nonprofit then says, well, he's raising money. However, we're not going to use fundraising money to pay a salary, so let him go. Mm -hmm. I made the case that we're raising unrestricted funds and we can justify that with the position because we're raising so much money. It didn't work out that way, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That was their philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, let me go. Yeah. And quite frankly, sitting at home, my daughter at the time, who is 18, that's how I know the age of the company. My <laughs> daughter's a newborn at the time. I'm sitting at the kitchen table. It's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And decided, start your own business. And the work with that nonprofit board, the nonprofit sector and others led me to realize a couple things. Number one, the nonprofit sector at that time operated with a lot of heart, 
but I didn't see a lot of business acumen showing up in boardrooms in strategic planning and others. And I believe that the two can coexist. You can have a heart and a head at the table and get work done. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to start the business. Uh, you're making me think of, and I've, I've mentioned it on the show before, uh, was listening to Brene Brown's podcast a few weeks ago and she had Priya Parker on and Priya was talking, who's extraordinary by the way. And Priya was talking about her mother, uh, and what her mother used to say. And she say, what are you good at and where is there need for it? Mm-hmm. And that's what you did. And that, that's what I, we, we share, we, there's a good bit of that whole story that, um, that I can relate to, except for the military part. Um, I grew up in the military with family and my father and everything, but I, but I haven't served. I'm certainly grateful for your service. Let me make sure I say that. Um, that, I mean, it's just extraordinary. So 18 years later, Charles, what's, what would you say has changed in the sector? So you, you go in and I know you've told me before you've got like these rooms and cabinets full of notes from, uh, from notes, even back in from the beginning and evaluations and things. And thinking back on those first days of launching the business and going into the boardroom now with a different hat on, what would you say over the 18 years, uh, is different today? What's the same, what's good about good or bad about either? Sure, sure. You know, I I have actually a storage room that we are renting out right now with file cabinets uh, of client files and portfolios over 18 years. I'm going to do something with that, Patrick, at some point. Not sure, but there's a lot of data there that that needs to be culled through. So let's start with what's the same. Uh, One of the things I think that are the same today as 18 years ago is that boards and CEOs, EDs, are still in a space where they may not be clear on what their roles, responsibilities, and expectations are. I still see situations in the nonprofit sector where the board and the CEO have a lack of clarity around what's your role, responsibility, expectation, Mm -hmm. what's mine, and even individual board members. Mm -hmm. That conversation is still taking place. I see that too. I still see that taking place. In fact, we do a self-assessment, an organizational assessment that boards take for themselves. And it's on 25 organizational components and role clarity mm-hmm. is almost always in the bottom five of those 25. They rate, yes. they tell them, they tell us right. we, we're just not super clear. And where, where, what I've found that uh, Charles is that that leads to a lack of engagement. Mm-hmm. And then when, when you ask board members, you know, why do you think this board isn't as engaged? It's never because we don't want to be or we're not interested. That's right. It's always, we don't know what to do. That's right. Our role's not being made clear. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. see the same thing? I see the exact same thing. And what I found with engagement is it's interesting when a board member knows what their role is individually and collectively Mm -hmm. and are put to work, quite frankly, they're they're more willing to be a part of the process. Board members want to be bothered. Again, something I still hear today that I heard 18 years ago, CEOs saying, we don't want to bother our board members. They're busy. I'm Mm. like, would you please stop saying that? Your board members are here because they want to be utilized. They want to be used. They want to be engaged. And sometimes we're overprotective of the board. Again, I still see that from 18 years ago. Here's a big change though that I love this change. Patrick, 18 years ago, there was this wall between the board and the staff And what Mm -hmm, I mean by mm -hmm. that, many CEOs and EDs saw themselves as I am the barrier between the two and they shall never meet. Yep. I've seen that wall come down now. Me too. Where where the board, staff, and CEO more have a collaborative relationship. And I've seen that work out beautifully. 
I agree 100%. In fact, I certainly urge for that to happen where it's not happening. So for example, when we're doing board retreats, I don't know about you, but when we're doing board retreats, Mm -hmm. the CEO will often ask me, you know, well, so who who needs to, who needs to be at this? Uh, Just, just me and the board, right? And I'll always ask, well, I don't know who else in your organization is at a leadership level that needs to have a voice and an ear and understand what's going on. And well, I mean, I have a senior team, but they normally don't go to board meetings. Mm-hmm. And I, why? That's and it. and they they never have an answer. Well, they just never have. You know, never. it's just always been a, it's just always been a thing. And it's I find it to be an eye opener still for some CEOs to go, yeah, okay, that's all right. You're, I guess that makes sense. You're right. You know, I I remember years ago again when I first started strategic planning, mm-hmm. it was the board by themselves at a retreat center in the mountains or at the beach somewhere. Yeah, did not engage the staff at all. Now we're seeing that shift. Obviously. That's, right. That's a great thing. We're now the staff managers engaging other stakeholders, internal and external. That's a refreshing change because we recognize that it's not just the board's responsibility. Sure, they're primarily responsibility to make sure it gets done, but they're engaging others to make sure it's done right and it's informed. I agree. I think that's really good. And and in our continuum, too, we, we'll see not only staff participating in those strategic planning retreats, but when you invite board members to participate at the next level, Mm -hmm. now you don't want to micromanaging, but Mm -hmm. when you're in an annual operational planning mode Mm -hmm. and you want to invite your board chair along to, to put, we're finding they actually will say yes and go and help and, and give some valuable input in that next level of planning as well. If you ask them, if you ask them, they will. And another thing I just want to add before I forget, when you think about the clients, constituents, patients, or whomever we're serving, we're seeing more engagement there than we did 18 to 19 years ago. So again, there was a time in the nonprofit sector where smart people sat in a room and looked out over the community and said, we know what they need. Mm -hmm. And then we would develop programs and services and all types of approaches to get, Hey people, we did this. You need it. Take it. And it didn't work. Mm. And somebody had the smart genius mind say, you know what, why don't we talk with people and stop trying to do things to people? And we're seeing that shift. And again, that's something that's very welcome. Uh, well said. I totally agree. Hasn't fully been made yet. Not, not fully, but it is moving. It's moving. I, there, I, I yes. see it too. It's I agree. There, I think yes. it's moving. Um, so Charles, among the the other things that you you and I both do with strategic planning is is one on one coaching, executive coaching. Mm-hmm. This is a podcast about leadership, and uh, I believe everything certainly does rise and fall on leadership. And um, I'm curious as to what are some of the common things, mm-hmm. the biggest challenges you see in leadership. Nick could be over the 18 years, but the things you keep seeing over and over and over the most common challenges or blind spots that particularly in the nonprofit sector that executives are having today? Man, I love this question here, Patrick. Uh, I'll give you a few. Okay. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I see, one of the common challenges of leadership are assumptions. A lot of us don't recognize the assumptions that are associated with leadership. Here's a, a, a big one that happens all the time. We assume that everybody has the same framework or philosophy of leadership. We assume that everybody has the same definition of leadership. Mm -hmm. I was coaching someone last year and I talked to them about some leadership challenges they were having. And I said, have you ever shared your leadership philosophy with your team members? And Patrick, they just kind of looked at me like, what what, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What do you mean? I said, you have a pretty particular and unique philosophy about leadership. You believe things about leadership. 
And by the way, I've talked to your staff. You believe some things differently than what they believe. Mm -hmm. But you've never had this conversation, those connected conversations. What if we talk about that? And by talking about it, they recognize there was conflict present, not because they didn't like each other or mad at each other. There was conflict present because there was no clear understanding of what's your philosophy, what's mine, and how do the two come together for us to meet this mission? Man, that's so good. And uh, uh, you can tell me if this has been your experience, but I'll, I'll add on that to that by saying not only does the executive not share their point of view on leadership with their team, but sometimes they haven't told themselves what their own point of view of leadership is. So they're, they're living it and they're belie- because they, we have these shadow beliefs and these values, but we don't realize what they are. And so we don't even know our own philosophy of leadership. Mm. I told a story in the first episode of this show, because it's where this show comes from. Actually, the leadership window is the name of the podcast. So, mm. Uh, I'll tell it quickly this time around, but it relates to this. I used to go around uh, doing leadership seminars and I used to love to collect leadership definitions. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would show them in my presentations I'd put them up on the slides. You know, here's John Maxwell's definition of leadership. It's influence. Nothing more than a, here's Marty Linsky's, you know, disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. And here's Kevin Cashman's, you know, authentic mm-hmm. self-expression that creates value. And you got all these, and everybody, Oh, that's a neat one. And they're writing them down. Right. And I get done and uh, one of the professors at Duke University, who was part of the Duke's uh, nonprofit management mm-hmm. certification program that they have, comes up to me afterwards. He goes, yeah, Miss Jinx, that was really good. That was that was really good. He goes, I'm just curious. You went through all those definitions of leadership. But you didn't share yours. What's yours? Wow. Silence. Silence. I was stunned. I didn't have one. Mm-hmm. I thought, man. And he told me point blank. He just said, you know, if you're going to be a leadership coach, you should probably have your own framework. Wow. I mean, and so it took me some time and I've sort of evolved it over time, but that's where the title of this show comes from Mm -hmm. is that for me, leadership is a window of opportunity. Mm -hmm. We seize it or we don't seize it, right? but leadership happens in moments. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a window of opportunity during which three things converge. And when these three things converge, there's, there's positive movement and Mm -hmm. it's vision, Mm -hmm. inspiration and Mm -hmm. empowerment. Awesome but it's a window of opportunity. It's not always there. We have to recognize it when it's there. It has right. nothing to do with position or authority or anything. So obviously now I have a clear point of view on, on, on leadership, but that was an indictment on me when he, he walked up and said, you're sharing all these, you know, this is great right. on a slide, but what do you think about it? Man, and I, so I learned to do the same thing you've done is ask these leaders, what's your point of view on leadership? And it's astonishing how much silence is on the other side when you ask that question. It, it's incredible, Patrick. And, you know, to your point about your own philosophy or framework, the way that we do it at the Weathers Group is I don't define leadership in and of itself by itself. Yeah. Uh, I, it's kind of interesting where I look at leadership. It's neutral. In my world, leadership is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. Think about how often right. people say, okay. They're a good leader. They're a bad leader. I love those conversations, yeah, by the way. They're just a leader. Right? They're just a leader. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in my world, leadership is it's neutral. Yeah. But the way we look at leadership is there's two words, leadership effectiveness. I talk about leadership mm-hmm. effectiveness. And so what I say is that, what is it? The successful use of influence to produce a desired or intended result. Good, period. Good, 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 good. And I when love I, it. And when I start from there, desired or intended result, watch this. You may not like the result of that leader and you might say you'd never follow them, but that doesn't mean they're a bad leader. Mm. They were effective leadership effectiveness. I use my influence to produce a desired or intended result. You are uh, maybe the third person that I've heard that exact tenant from in the last, I don't know, three or four months. And one of the, one of the people I know, you know, and that's Ron Harvey, who was on the show mm-hmm. 
uh, and I love the, that you use effectiveness in that because effective stands in the place of right or wrong. Exactly. It's not the right leader. It's effective leadership. Effective leadership. And you define effective, right? That's I mean, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So when we do this, going back to your original question, what are we helping leaders deal with nowadays? We're helping, excuse me, acknowledge what's effective for them. What is the result? What are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to get out of this? And framing mm-hmm. it in a manner where here's a big thing. Leaders think their shoulders are broader than they actually are. And we feel that our that we're burdened. I've got to do everything because I'm the leader. We're still there today helping leaders recognize that, no, you don't have to do everything. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do everything. And you one, can't do everything. <laughs> you, you can't do everything. And you've probably seen this in your work, Patrick. One of the biggest things that we do in the nonprofit sector, now I'm going to go nonprofit for real here. Mm-hmm. We promote people because they are good at their job. That's right. Fundraising you or running a program. You or, work very well. You do that task very well. Yeah. But then sometimes we sabotage their career because a lot of people don't understand the transition from doing to leading. I'm not saying leaders don't do. That's right. not what I'm saying. That's but right. it's, it's a mind shift. And a lot of people need help making that mind shift. And that's what we do a lot of our coaching, helping people shift there. Yeah, absolutely. From from high individual performer to high impact leader. Yep. Where where the, the, the performance is now coming from others. That's exactly right. Ah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, yeah, and you talk about assumptions. And uh, offline, we've also talked about uh, the barriers of the blind spots or the things we do that we get in our own way sometimes as mm-hmm. leaders. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are some of those things in your experience? You know, I, I don't know who to give credit for this for, but somebody once said um, they called it the sin of comparison. And they said, if you want to, <laughs> you know, comparison is a thief of joy. Right. And, and one of the things we do as leaders, we compare ourselves to. other. Listen, my name is Charles Weathers. I'm not Patrick Jenks. I'm not John Maxwell. You know, I'm not I'm not Andy Stanley. I'm not you know, I'm not T.D. Jakes or whomever. I, my name is Charles Weathers. Now, I can learn from others. I can look at others. I can even model others, but I can't be others. And one of the barriers are we sit down and we compare ourselves. And until I can be like X or Mm -hmm. Y, I'm not a leader. Right. We're in simulation mode at that point. Let that go. Mm -hmm. Let that go. Here's what I've learned. When Patrick Jinx is the authentic, genuine Patrick Jinx, nobody can touch him. Mm. When Charles Weathers is the authentic, genuine Charles Weathers, nobody can touch me. That's rich. And I'm going to tell you something, my friend, and you know this. You and I can both have the same content, but create a different experience But when we bring ourselves. And that's what we offer. Man. You know, that is so true. And I've seen it a few times just recently in uh, in the prospecting recruitment contracting process with clients and potential clients chemistry has to be there. The Mm -hmm. feel and the approach has to be there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's talk you and me again, we can have, you know, if both of us have on our websites that we are experienced nonprofit, we do strategic planning and coaching. We're on the Forbes coaches council and we speak and we do all, we do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. They can go to a million websites and see that same stuff. That's right. When they have a conversation with us, they get a feel for this is going to be a good fit because this approach works for us. Mm -hmm. Um, We feel it, we relate to it. It matches with our values. It aligns. It's good timing. Um, In some cases, uh, they've, we, we, both of us have had clients who have worked with both of us yes, because they want something different the next time around. Right. They, it's like right. the timing is different and we're going this approach now and we're going that approach now. So I, I, I love that. I think that's, that's spot on. We do get in our own way, uh, with the simulation I, and I, I was guilty of that for a long time. I, and again, 
going back to all these leadership definitions. Mm-hmm. That was simulation. Yep. That was not having my own and living my own philosophy out on what leadership is. That, that's exactly right. That's one of them. And the other one I want to add before we move on is not recognizing that results and relationships are not mutually exclusive. And what I mean by that from a leadership perspective, as a leader, sometimes we can focus so much on results that we will run people over to get to the result. Look back, I'll check on you later, but right now I'm so focused on results, I'm Mm -hmm. forgetting the value of the relationships. Mm -hmm. And, And here's a belief that I have. My belief is that relationships are the doorway to results. And if you focus on the relationship, it's both and not either or. That's right. And so a lot of leadership, again, this is just a very frank conversation that I'm having with you. I have seen nonprofit leaders do damage to their people. I've witnessed oh, impact. Absolutely. I, I, I've seen nonprofit leaders create toxic work environments in a social service sector where we're expecting people to create a great experience for our clients or patients or constituents, mm-hmm. but it's not a good experience for the person working there. Right. Because I want to get that result. Yep. And people feel they're in an abusive, neglective environment. I've witnessed it. I've tried over the years to help people correct that. So leaders must recognize, yes, we have to get results, but you got to take care of your people because your people take care of the people you're serving. Man. And this is why they're shocked when they, when they do a 360 assessment. Yep. And, and when they get that honest feedback, they're, they're like, what, How, what do you mean? I'm, I'm not warm and I'm not inviting and I'm not inclusive and I'm not, I'm all those things. Yeah. And don't ever confuse quiet with satisfied. Oh yeah, that's good. That's right. Yeah. It's usually, if you're going to make an assumption, make it on the other side, probably. Right, right. That's probably the case. Uh, the other thing that I know, um, Charles, you and I have talked about um, is values. Uh, and I'd love to hear because you've, I think you've given a lot of thought to this lately. I've heard you say it when we were doing our work with, um, with a couple of colleagues around this uh, pandemic. Values is another one of those words that has lost its meaning because it's just, it's something you're supposed to have on your strategic plan. You know, you put the five bullets of integrity and honesty and transparency, and those are your values. Um, but it, it, one of the things I think that leaders struggle with is their understanding and appreciating their role in shaping culture and values in the organization and what that really means. Because when you start talking about it, people glaze over because it, they just, I don't even know what that means other than those bullet point words on our website. I don't know what that means. Right. Right. You know, we put values on the wall. We put them on the website. We Mm -hmm. put them on the board manual, the employee manual, the back of the business card. We very seldom put them into practice. And one of the things that we've been working with organizations with over the last couple of years is becoming what we call a VIP organization, values in practice. And and how do you become a- We think we're practicing them, don't we? we, Don't we assume we're practicing them? Because because they're on the page, we must be practicing them. They must be there. They're written down. Right. Watch this. I even know them. I can list them. Yeah. You know, we create nice little acronyms that go along with it. So we must be practicing. No, we're not practicing them. Right. And so to help the values manifest, the first thing is we have to recognize what's the difference between a value and a nice business practice? What's the difference between a value and a nice idea or lofty Mm -hmm. idea? Again, defining important terms. We define values as non-negotiable principles. We will not compromise that guide our Mm decision-making value. Mm -hmm. And the truth is at that point from that definition, guess what? You don't have a lot of values. You don't have 15, 20, 30, 40 values, right? You got about five or six things that you're saying, you know what, no matter what we do, 
These right here will guide those decisions. Yeah, and we're not talking about policies and procedures when we say that. No. We're talking about the core values. We're talking about the primary parameters of how we approach what we do. Exactly. And, and here's when you know it's a value, Patrick. Regardless of the money I offer you, the fame, fortune, notoriety, recognition, you're saying, we ain't doing that. It can't be bought. Not that. Yeah. We're not doing that. And so that's when people, that's why that values conversation has to be deeper than we value integrity. I'll give mm. you a quick example. People love telling me, Charles, we value honesty. Now, the Think about the word honor. I say, great. Yeah. Then I'll say, when's the last time you told a lie? Now, my grandmother wouldn't want me to say the word lie, but I just said it. Yeah. And people <laughs> say, well, it wasn't really a lie. It was more of this. So I said, but it wasn't totally honest. And they have excuses for that. Yeah. So I said, be careful what you say you value. What does it really look like in practice? And that's a deeper, more meaningful conversation. And it's more than just the word accountability on the wall. How many boards or nonprofits or others have you seen say, we value accountability, but we don't even adhere to our own bylaws, which we have the power to change if we need to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, and I, boy, we're, we're in a tough time right now. Charles, because it, these values and the living of the values versus we have the values up here, but we keep demonstrating that they're not really real. I mean, obviously we see it on a national and global level. We see it in local politics. We see it in uh, our religious leaders. We see it in corporate America. We see it in the nonprofit sector where mm -hmm. you'd think it doesn't happen, but that's, um, we're in a tough spot right now with that. I think I think Americans uh, and probably people all over have lost a lot of faith in leadership as a, a, a just as a as a concept when it comes to that that value shaping. I think a couple of things contribute to that, Patrick. Number one, we still associate with leadership leadership with positions, with authority and position, right. authority and position. Number one, we have to move beyond that. That's right. Uh, the other component is when you really think about what's most important to us. We know of a nonprofit that we work with for years who recently rejected a six figure donation, six figures, and they needed the money. Yeah. And the board executive committee and the executive director said, "We're not taking it." Why? Because the donor had some strings attached to that. And the nonprofit said, we're not going to do that. We'll do this. And the donor yeah. said, no. And they walked away from the money. And trust me, they needed the money. Yeah. That's a value in practice right there. That, that's the non-negotiable part. That's the non-negotiable part right there. Yeah, that, that's good. Um, so well, a lot of what you're talking about, you know, we've, we've mentioned sort of these assumptions and values. They intersect, don't they? Absolutely, they do. Absolutely. Th they do. Those two things intersect. I'm curious as to this connected conversations. Mm -hmm. Um Boy, here's another thing we're struggling with in our world today is how to have conversations because I've said it all the time. First of all, I think social media has destroyed emotional intelligence mm -hmm. and we don't know how to have conversations anymore. We, mm -hmm. we think we do. We, we post our, we rant on social media. That's, mm -hmm. that's how we converse. Mm -hmm. And, and if someone rants in a way that we like, well, we'll like it or share it or retweet it or whatever. And if they rant something that we don't like, we'll, we'll chime in with our thing. Right. Those aren't conversations. They're not conversations at all. And what's happening? How do we get, how, I'd love to hear some of your magic sauce, Charles. What is it, you know, obviously we don't have a, a time to go through the whole, whole sure. thing, but how would you, how would you sum up what it is you're helping organizations actually do? What are some of those key concepts or tenets that help us have better and more meaningful and more connected conversations. One of the things that we're doing is we're helping people recognize how to value the relationship more than the opinion that they want to state in that moment. Now, if you just, just go there for a second, mm. Patrick, if you and I have a relationship, which we do, 
and I value this relationship more than I value my opinion that I have in this moment. Mm-hmm. Just taking a moment to pause and think about that can help me frame what I say before I say it. And what we're finding is there are a lot of people, quite frankly, that are in relationships, personal and professional, who don't really value the relationship. What I have to say is more important than how you receive what I have to say or how you feel about what I have to say. Even even what you would consider to be close friends and even within family. Yes. We see this. Yes. Yes. So it, it starts with that. It starts with that. The second thing is we try to help people understand that what does it really mean to be in a space where, watch this, not common ground, but create new ground. It's, and mm-hmm. it, there's a, this whole thing around, you know, common ground only means there's a power dynamic there. So if Charles and Patrick want to create common ground, one of us will end up moving more toward the other. But new ground is let's both, both move. And in doing that, here's what, something I'll share with your, your audience today. There's a difference between understanding and agreement. And one thing that we help our clients work through is dismissing the agreement side of things for a moment. Now, again, if we're talking about my livelihood or my humanity, the agreement, we're not even going to argue that. I'm not not talking about that. I'm not going that deep here. But here's an example. We go into meetings, board meetings, staff meetings, team meetings, and we seek agreement. I want people to agree with me. Well, Patrick, I think we could agree that there are some things we'll never agree on. Mm. So let's flip it for a second. Instead of seeking agreement, let's seek understanding. And understanding when we're debating an issue or a challenge in the boardroom or the staff room or in the community, understanding is let me get up from my side and my view for a second and just take a look at what do you see? I still may not agree with it, but at least I understand where you're coming from. And if we all would get up from our side and just go look at the other side, look at another perspective, there's power there. And if I really understand where you're coming from, it almost certainly flies in the face of what I assume, where I assumed you were coming from. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so understanding challenges our assumptions. And that's so important to building these connected conversations mm. and these conversations where we watch, see conversation Here's my belief. Welcome Con- to the leadership window <laughs> podcast, everybody, where you are getting stuff you ain't getting nowhere else. I can tell you that right now. This is so rich. Keep going. Check this out, man. Conversations are the most common form of collaboration for leaders. Let me say that again. Conversations are the most common form of collaboration that leaders engage in. Why? We co-labor conversations right now. You put your words in. I put my words in. Mm. I make meaning of your words. You make meaning of my words. Mm. We give feedback. We confirm. We align. Are we moving in the same? We are laboring and working together in this moment, in this conversation. Can I, can I, I have to pause you right there. I want to challenge that just for a second. Make oh. sure I understand something. I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm if we first have an understanding of how we're defining conversation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So in other words, us both talking right. in a room together mm-hmm. at each other mm-hmm. is not collaboration, right? That necessarily. Cause that's not necessarily a conversation. So don't, I've heard you say this, we have yep. to define the terms we use, right? Yep, that's right. So how do you define conversation? Maybe you're doing it. Maybe, right. maybe the conversation is when it is collaborative mm-hmm. and you are, and that understanding uh, effort and those things are there, then it is a conversation. That is correct. And so here's an example. You're exactly right. And we're on one accord here. There's a difference between dialogue, debate, and discussion. Mm-hmm. 
So when I, when I, so watch this, you start with and in, monologue, that's right. you start with intentions. So one of the mm-hmm. best ways to help define a conversation is start with your intentions. What are, when I walked into your studio today and we had this conversation, you started with intentions. Here's what we're going to do. Here's mm-hmm. what we're going to talk. You help lay the framework and the groundwork going forward. I gave you feedback. I agreed to it. Mm-hmm. We got on one accord. We create, watch this, a pool of shared meaning. All mm-hmm. right, let's go have the conversation. You know what a lot of people do sometimes? Imagine us doing this today, Patrick, and I walk in, you give me the headphones and you just go. <laughs> wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> wait, oh no, so I, no, I assume Charles knew what we were doing. Right. I, move the assumptions out the way. Start with your intention, marry that to my intentions, and we'll both help each other reach our intentions. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, and that's a coaching principle, you know, in, in at least in the coaching certification I went through, the model starts with connect. Mm-hmm. So people before mission, you know, and we do that all the time as leaders. I've coached leaders. I've shadowed leaders mm-hmm. as a part of corporate coaching uh, assignments where you, you walk around with them for a day to, to, to do some observation. Yep. And I was coaching a leader once who had a 360 assessment that came back and said she just was fine, but she just wasn't real warm. Mm-hmm. And we walked with her and uh, I thought she was plenty warm. I mean, but as I watched how she engaged with her people in, in this, in this um, large marketing firm, mm-hmm. she walked in, hey, how you doing? Um, when do you think that report, like, hey, how you doing was the limit of the, of the connection and went straight to mission. Right. So back to the relationship piece that you're talking about, the c- connection. The mm-hmm. second piece of, of our cycle really is clarify. And that's where is what you're expecting the same thing as what I'm expecting. And if not, let me know that let's, let's lay that out. So we understand, like you talked about if if you walked in and said, Oh, uh, that's what I thought this was something totally different. We still could have had time to clarify it and Mm -hmm. figure it out Mm -hmm. before we launch and go on the air. That's right. Um, So connecting and clarifying I'm relating to uh, that. That's it's just affirming. So I'm thinking out loud here, how affirming it is with what you're saying when you talk about relationships and you talk about this this clarity of intention mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. you're having a conversation. That's right. And keep going. That's right. Yeah. And I'm going to give uh, your audience a few questions to ask themselves. And th- this is fun for me. Mm-hmm. Before I have a conversation, sometimes I ask this question. <clears throat> Does this need to be said? Mm-hmm. Does this need to be said by me? Does this need to be said by me now? Those three yeah. questions, and they, they happen in a split second, Yeah, but they'd help me in my career in connecting with others. Because Patrick, there's some things that need to be said, but not by me. And not to the person, not to this particular individual, maybe too. And not at this particular time. And not this time. And, mm-hmm. and as leaders, here's where leaders have to demonstrate some humility. There's some things, that, it's not yours to say. You might see it and know it, but let somebody else say it. Mm. They're, they're, that's not a weakness. That's wisdom. Yeah, yeah. That's what, and, and I've seen, watch this, bad timing will destroy a good message. We know this when it comes to calling on a big major donor, <laughs> because we'll call, we'll ask, we'll ask our board who knows this person. Mm-hmm. We know that it's important who asks. Yes. And we also know that timing is important. That's right. We have, so we can relate this to our functional stuff about fundraising and board recruitment and things, but That's we right. forget about it when it comes to just some of the, the everyday leadership moments yes. that we have. And one of the reasons, this may not be the reason we forget about it, but it does contribute to it. One of the things we spend a lot of time with our coaches is talking about trust. Mm-hmm. Tr- trust is a, still a major element that needs to be addressed. And, and trust is something where when you're operating in a low trust environment, 
it's hard to get anything done in a low mm. trust. I know you know Stephen M. R. Covey and the Speed oh, yeah. of Trust. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite pieces of work. Mine as well. Mine, and I've, I've lived by that for years and try to help leaders understand his framework and yeah. how, you know, trust, you know, the cost of trust and the speed of trust. The economic formula for it. Yeah. There really is. And when you help people realize that, it's like, whoa, when there's low trust, it takes longer to get things done and it costs more. That's right. Yeah. When there's high trust, we're more efficient done quicker and it costs less. That's right. So don't we want to operate in high trust environments? Do we want to have a high trust boardroom, a high trust team and so on? Well, guess what? Without the conversations, the connected conversations and the intentions and laying this out, you'll never have a high trust environment. Well, that's right. And those conversations you're talking about fall within Covey's, maybe the more important part even of his work is, okay, so we know what trust is and we see a formula for it. How do you build it? That's right. And he, anyway, he walks through 13 uh, specific behaviors mm-hmm. for trust about mm-hmm. straight talk and expectations and that's extending right. trust to others. And yep, yep, that's yep. the part we forget. It's like, oh, trust. And we also think that trust is all about, you know, is am I a person that, that you could trust? You know, yep. am I this honest and in, integrity, yep. you know, where it wouldn't hurt you? But as Covey says, trust is as much about competence as it is about character. Exactly. The two coexist. Yeah. And, and I'll just share this from a nonprofit leader's perspective. The one thing that we find leaders have to restore trust. They did not break. Now bookmark that part right yep. there. I mean, that this is a big one for nonprofit leaders. You weren't there when it happened. Mm-hmm. You were, you weren't on the board. You weren't the CEO. You weren't the program man. you were not there. We know that, but guess what? You're there now. Mm-hmm. So you have got to spend time rebuilding and restoring trust that you did not break. And you cannot rebuild and restore trust by forcing it upon people. You can't make them trust you. It's well said. I mean, we're talking about things that just, we, uh, the reason we're talking about them, Charles, is because we see them all the time. That's we right. see this stuff. And I, I mean, I saw it when I was in the sector in executive leadership, I was, mm-hmm. I was, I was both a victim of some of the things that you're talking about and a perpetrator of some of the things that you're talking about. Both of us. Uh, I mean, I go back and I think in you know, some of the things you're saying, I'm going, ouch, ouch. Yeah. I've done that. Yeah. I've done that too. Um, we're all, we're all just still trying to learn. Um, what is it that, um, so conversations and we're thinking about collaborations, mm-hmm. uh, what is something you would say to help people who are having difficulties with the even entering into the conversation? Because maybe there's, and I know you, you deal some with organizations who are trying to solve some toxic thing going on that requires these, like the real tough conversations, right? The crucial conversations and, and, and things that, you know, uh, um, the folks at vital smarts and all have written about for years, um, how do you get someone to even come to the table for those right conversations? What are some of those? I mean, there may not be anything right top of mind. That's a tough question, but I think that's a big part of the problem. For, for example, you know, thinking about the, uh, all the political vitriol, for example, that we're experiencing in, in the world today, we've, we, you know, the lines are drawn, you're on this side, I'm on that side. And, and I don't even want to have the conversation. Uh, another thing that, that we see is a, a big, a big movement right now, finally on this, you know, real, really talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, mm-hmm. these kinds of things. Well, there's a lot of people who just nah, don't just, you know, talk to the hand, like, come on, enough diversity, equity, inclusion already a conversation. Really? We're going to have a conversation. What is that even going to do? What's it going to, how do you get people to, no, no, come to the conversation. 
have the conversation. A couple of things, Patrick. Again, great, great points you're making. Uh, number one, sometimes people are not going to come to the conversation. We have to go to the people. And again, it's just it's a wording there. But oftentimes there's a power dynamic associated with you come to my table. You come to my table. Well, I'm inviting you to my table. So you're included. Right. It's still your table. I, I told somebody recently, get rid of the table. Just get rid of the table. Just just convene with somebody, you know, new ground. Also, there's a key about acknowledgement. We have to acknowledge why people may not come to the table. We have to acknowledge why people may not want to talk. They're the, the three T's of tough conversations, tension, trauma, and triggers, tension, trauma, and triggers. There are some things that you and I might want to talk about. And people say, I'm not in the space right now. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Do you know sometimes for employees in a workspace, the emotional labor that's required to keep having some of these conversations, especially if you are uh, the only woman on the team or the only African-American on the team, the only indigenous person, only Latinx person and so on. Sometimes that one person bears the burden of educating the entire office and it's emotionally laborious. And folks, I don't want to have this conversation again. I don't want to talk about it anymore. And also we don't recognize how somebody may have been wounded by a leader in the past that took their trust and abused it. So again, we're going to go back to what we've been saying, relationship development. Would you meet a person who you don't know and say, let me get deep with you and go here? Would you say, wait a second, get to know me, Mm -hmm. cultivate the relationship over time, and then we can get there? Mm -hmm. All leaders, please listen to this right now. Sometimes, sometimes the barrier to our success is we try to do things too quickly. We want to go do it. Guilty again. We want to go do it right now. We're going to do it right now. That's right. And I said, you're not going to do anything yet. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to learn and you're going to listen. How about you just do that right now? No, we got to go fix. Don't fix anything right now. Learn, listen, grow, develop the relationship. Understand. Understand. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's what I got to do. And start tying it all together. Again, I'm not saying no action, obviously, but I'm saying it's a process. And, And here's the thing. It's not a cut and paste process. What worked with this person on that team and that community at that time may not work here. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and we, we've got to just receive that. And, and also the, just recognizing that we're dealing with people, people and, and, and our words. Our words are so important, Patrick. We learn as children how important our words are, because what does a young child do when they get mad at their parents? The first thing they do is they stop talking. You're not worthy of my words right now. We mm-hmm. shut down. Mm-hmm. And if you don't value me, I'm sure not going to give you my words, which we I turn, value. We turn our back, stomp to our room, and slam the door. Slam the door. And we may not do that physically in the workplace or the boardroom, but people will shut down when they don't seem valued. Mm-hmm. Remember this. Everybody wants three things. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be valued. Every human being wants that. See them, hear them, and value them. Yeah. That's what we want. We want to belong. And if I don't feel like I belong, I'm not going to get engaged. Yeah. It's pretty simple when you think of it in those terms to think, you know, um, what would I want? How do I want to be treated? How do I want to, you know, it, it really makes it pretty simple in that framework when you, when you break it down like that. Um, oh man, this is, this is good. Uh, help me understand. And then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap here in a minute, but the term connected conversations, mm-hmm. why, why that term? Tell 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 explain a little bit more what that means to have connected conversations. Is it, is it on, does it mean ongoing? Is it a chain of conversations or is it intersections between 
ideas, people, places, and times? What, what does it mean? The, the term connected conversation came from, think about gears. You see how gears mm-hmm. connect together. Mm-hmm. So, so when gears connect, it's mutually beneficial because everything is moving together. Right. And watch this. This gear can't move without the other gear. Mm-hmm. They're meant to go. So the connected. Think mm-hmm. about all. Think about all the elements of our leadership lives. The element of organizations where one thing doesn't move, another doesn't move. Mm-hmm. And so the whole machine doesn't move. Everything just stops. Yeah. And, and sometimes, watch this. You can have a big machine or an engine, but these gears way in the bottom over here in that corner that seem to be insignificant and nothing will stop the whole thing from running. Mm. Watch this. What conversations, by the fact that we're not having or having ineffectively, are stopping the whole organization and team from running? We've seen that. Mm. So the connected is recognizing the larger context of everything that we do and how one conversation, one conversation, you can do the, you do a strategic planning retreat and you laid it out perfectly. The document looks beautifully. But if we're not having connected conversations, that plan sits on the shelf. Yeah. And eventually it just dies. Just it dies. It really will just die. Yeah. So we do connected conversations. Our belief is conversations are the connective tissue that keeps organizations running. Mm. Man, good stuff, Charles. Good stuff. Um, let me ask you this. And I, I actually ask everybody this. You, you really are so crystal clear uh, and, and deep and profound in your leadership points of view. I mean, you really are. I, I'm I, truly Charles, I'm sitting here just like, this is like, this isn't a podcast anymore. This is a coaching session and I'm really grateful for it. Where did this come from? Where did you get, where'd you get this? Who were the, you know, and I, the question I ask, you can answer any way you want. But the question I usually ask is who are the leaders in your life early on, maybe in your career or your life that, you know, one or two people that you would say, and I know there's more, that you would say help shape this and, and uh, help you form this path and, and to clarity of leadership today? Yeah, great question. Uh, the first person is a gentleman by the name of Paul Burns. Paul Burns was my first business mentor. When I got out of the military and moved to South Carolina, when I was working for that water treatment company, mm. Paul was the, the general manager of the company. And Paul hired me as a telemarketer. That was my first job there. I was on the phone. I was one of those people that call you at night. That was me calling. And Paul taught me so much about life and about leadership and about management and about sales and about strategy. And one thing I always uh, just appreciated about Paul is that he taught me just how to be my real, genuine, authentic self. He just taught me that he he taught me that my my success did not depend on what was framed on a certificate behind my desk. That's nice. It's nice. We mm-hmm. all have some of those, he said, but it, it's more just about how you treat people. Mm-hmm. And, and he taught me how to take care of people. I watched him with sales teams and me. He just taught me how to take care of people. So he had a major, major influence on me. Mm-hmm. And I would probably say the second person. I'm going to go back to high school. Mr. Latiri was the athletic director at Union Catholic Regional High School in New Jersey. (laughs) And Mr. Latiri was a man that didn't have a huge stature, but he had a presence. And that man taught me how to walk in a room, no matter what you look like or where you were, but you walked in a room and your presence spoke before your mouth did. Mm. Those both had a huge influence on me. Wow. I can tell. I can tell. Yeah, that, that came out pretty passionate and authentic right there. Uh, last question for you. Um, what's the, what's the 15 second number one, Charles Weathers tenet of leadership that all leaders above all, like the number one thing to keep in mind when you're talking about leadership, I would say overall 
I would take everything we talked about today, Patrick, and I'd wrap it up in the word authenticity. Authenticity is my word that I have really been spending some time on lately. Mm. And I, I really believe that being your authentic self, as I mentioned to you earlier, you be you, let me be me, and, and let's walk our path. We all have a path. And with authenticity, it's all one part of it, is my, the abundance. When you talked about earlier how we can work together, mm-hmm. I believe in a spirit of abundance. I believe we are in an abundant world and there's more than enough for everybody. And when you're authentic, you will realize what part of that abundance is for you. When you're not, you miss it because you're trying to be someone else. Man, that's good. And and I'm going to say this and interject here. Maybe you can get your thought on this. Um, I've coached leaders who recognize, for example, a 360 assessment will reveal some blind spots of how they're being perceived. And, you know, leadership is always about improving and, and we do want to change because we want to do better. We want to, we want to ditch bad behaviors. We want to take on new behaviors, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I've talked to leaders who struggle with that line between changing where I need to change but yet being authentic and being the person that I am. It's like, you know, you hear people, I'll go back to one of those definitions of leadership that I picked up a long time ago from Kevin Cashman, and I love it. Authentic self-expression that creates value. Mm-hmm. Three-legged stool. It's got to be authentic because people see through the superficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got to get expressed. Can't keep it to yourself. If right. it doesn't get expressed, it's not leadership. And it has to create value. Mm-hmm. That's the tricky part, right? So right. it's a three-legged stool. And he talks about... He talked about, we know authentic self-expressors, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The ones that are proud, to, it comes in my head, it comes out my mouth, that's just who I am, you're just going to have to deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. And when they realize that, well, that might not be influencing your people in the right way, that might not be the most effective right. tentative leadership to practice in your deal, you might want to dial that back a little bit and they'd be like, but that's who I am. You're asking me to be someone who I'm not. Mm-hmm. So that fine line between changing where we need to change and being authentic, I find some of my coaches have difficulty seeing. I, I see that as well. Quick story if I have a moment. Yeah, here. you do. Work, working with a leader recently who their authentic self, we had a conversation, they decided it was time for them to move on from their position. They said to me, Charles, we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, some mm-hmm. other things, some new mandates in their role. They said, I'm not doing this. Don't want to do it. Can't do it. Authenticity, authenticity surfaced for them when they realized that if I stayed in there, I was going to cause more harm than good, and they walked away. See, those people that you're talking about who are like, this is just me. See, I don't see that authenticity. That's arrogance. Mm. Because you're recognizing, because authenticity says, why are you serving in this position? Why are you running this nonprofit? Why are you on this board? You agreed to a vision, mission, and values. You agreed to perform in a certain manner. And if I recognize that my style will cause more harm than good, if the mission really matters and the mission is more important, I won't make the mission suffer because my authenticity gets in the way. Mm. Wow. Charles, thank you. I uh, from, genuinely thank you. Uh, this has been incredibly rich for me. So I know it is for our listeners. Uh, this is one of those episodes I'm actually anxious to go back now and, and listen to. And I can't wait for this uh, for this thing to get in into everybody's ears. I, I really do appreciate. It. Thanks for carving out time and thanks for coming here. It just it makes it so much richer to have a conversation in purpose in person. You're and welcome, my friend. Rest assured, everybody. Charles walked in with his mask. We're, we're, we're social distanced here in the studio. We've disinfected everything before he walked in, uh, minding our P's and Q's here, but also just um, wanted to connect. 
folks, uh, take this to heart. Listen, listen to this episode several times. Take some notes and then lead on. <laughs> <laughs>